Well, howdy. Welcome back. Good to see everybody. Uh, If you've got a Bible, open up to Acts 14. That's where we're going to be this morning. I'm going to begin in verse 1. In Iconium, they, that's Paul and Barnabas, entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus. And Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes, rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning to praise you, to sing of your faithfulness, that you have never left us alone, that nobody in this room has ever spent a single second apart from your presence, because you are everywhere and because you love us. Father, we pray this morning that we would rely upon you as we hear from your word that you would help us to understand what it has to say. Open up our minds, Father. Remove the distractions and the worries and the fear that often follow us into this room. And I pray instead, allow us to understand. Move in our hearts, Father. Remove our resistance and our rebellion to you. And then empower our hands and our feet for your service. Make us faithful in whatever situation or circumstances we find ourselves over the course of this next week. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, there was a study done about 12 or 13 years ago at the University of Massachusetts uh, that discerned this, that there is a link between skillful lying and popularity. Uh, And what they did was they got a bunch of high school students and they surveyed those who knew them, their friends, their family, on their social skills. How good are they at interacting with people? How popular are they? How do people feel about them? And then they also had all of the students make a persuasive case about whether or not they liked a particular drink that they had to taste. So on one hand, they had to make the case they liked it. On the other hand, they had to make the case they didn't like it. So they all gave one presentation in which they were telling the truth, and one in which they were lying. What they found was that those students with better social skills, who were more popular, were also better at lying. Now, that may or may not surprise you. Certainly, those of us who have been through junior high and high school go, yeah, I get that. Right, Those kids who are most popular often are the ones that are able to blend in the best, that are able to understand what's required in a particular social setting. To a certain degree, you've got to be able to pull back at times from just speaking the unvarnished truth if you want to be liked. Uh, There may even be times where it's not appropriate socially just to speak the unvarnished truth, right? If somebody says, my favorite color is green, you don't always want to be the guy that jumps in and goes, green's dumb, moron, I hate green, right? If somebody says to you, "Uh, do you like my haircut? And you don't. It may not always be appropriate to say that is the ugliest haircut in the history of mankind, right? You look awful. And so we all know there's a balance between telling the truth and what might be socially appropriate. Uh, The challenge that presents, though, is for some of us, we become so skilled at pulling back from telling the truth and so skilled at telling people what they want to hear that we're not quite sure even anymore what we believe. And if we know what we believe... We're afraid to say it. And so some of us in this room perhaps drift from group to group and we're chameleons. Uh, We just take on the color of whatever group we happen to be with. I was looking out our front window this past week with my three-year-old son and he pointed out a couple of geckos running across the window. And one was brown and one was green. Probably based upon where they had most recently been sitting. When you see those little lizards, they sit on a brown thing, they turn brown. They sit on a green thing, they turn green. That's the way some of us are in our social interactions. We're just chameleons. This poses a particularly difficult challenge, I think, for those of us who want to follow Jesus Christ and who want to be faithful to the mission and the message of the gospel because at times it's not going to be well received. Now, at times it will. At times you may preach the gospel or speak the gospel and people may really like it and may really be attracted to it and they might believe. We see that in the book of Acts. There are times when the apostles preach the gospel and thousands respond because the spirit moves in their hearts. But almost always, there are also people who oppose the gospel, who try to kill them, or try to have them arrested, or simply try to diminish or destroy the effectiveness of the message. So for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, the challenge is this, how do we love people and yet not just be a chameleon, where when we come in here, we raise our hands, we sing the songs, we speak the right words, and we talk about Jesus. And then when we go into our classes or into our workplace, all of that is shut down because we want to be socially acceptable. It's a temptation for me as a preacher every week. I'm tempted to stand up here 
and just tell you what, what I think you want to hear. Just to be funny for 45 minutes, to have you leave feeling really good about me and about yourself, but mostly about me, rather than to take the risk at times of preaching the word of God, even when none of us in here may not like what it has to say to our lives. Now, you guys are not professional preachers, but you are called to represent Jesus Christ. And if you're like me, my guess is at times the temptation is almost overwhelming for you to tell people what they want to hear. And what I love about the life of Paul as we look at the book of Acts is that Paul does adapt his message to his audience. Certainly, you see him using images and illustrations and themes that are familiar to the people he's talking to, but he does not shy away from preaching the message of the gospel. In some cases, he could be tempted to do that when he receives a lot of praise. In other cases, he could be tempted to do that when he receives ridicule or persecution. And in neither case does Paul shy away from preaching the truth graciously and lovingly, but also boldly because he knows who he is, he knows what his mission is, and he has a strong belief that Jesus rose from the dead. And so he's grounded in these absolute facts that center him and prevent him from just swaying in the wind and following public opinion. We're going to see that here as we look at Acts 14. One particular slice of Paul's life and Barnabas's life in which it would have been really easy for them just to pull away from speaking the truth that Jesus died and rose again for eternal life. Because at times, the message was so popular, they could have taken advantage of it and set themselves up as gods. At other times, it was so unpopular, they were threatened with death. And we see a steady persistence in Paul's life. I say, that's the kind of persistence and consistency of character I want to see in my own. How does Paul do it? What does that look like? First thing we see as we walk through Acts 14 is that as we share the gospel, it's going to invite both praise and scorn. Look again at 14. Verse 1, in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and Greeks. So they preached the gospel, a whole bunch of people come to know Jesus. That's great, right? They have an evangelistic revival and people are believing, but the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. All right, so on the same day, they have this huge response. The very same time, there are people who come and turn people's minds against them. And, and the opposition gets to the point that they actually have to flee Iconium because they hear that there's a plot being stirred up to kill them. So they flee. They go to Lystra. They go to Lystra and Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, raises a man up who cannot walk. He's been lame from birth. You remember Acts 3 that we talked about earlier this semester? Same thing happens outside the temple. Peter is walking by. There's a guy sitting there begging who can't walk. Peter raises him up miraculously. The guy goes around and proclaims the glory of God. All right, Paul does the same thing. This guy stands up, begins walking. Now what happens is the people recognize that God is active. They recognize the divine, but the only God that they have are the gods of the Romans and Greeks. So they go, look, the gods are here. And they start calling Barnabas Zeus because he's kind of quiet. And they call Paul Hermes because he talks a lot. Zeus is the chief of the gods. Hermes was his son. Hermes was the chief messenger. They go get the priest 
who comes and he brings cows and all kinds of stuff and they start to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas because they believe they're gods. Now, I like it when people tell me my sermons are great, but I've never had that happen. Never had somebody bring a goat up here, right? And you read this and you go, how is it possible that things go this far before Paul and Barnabas put a stop to it? Right? As soon as they say, hey, they're gods, why don't they? Well, it's because they're speaking in a different language. It tells us they're speaking in their native tongue. Paul and Barnabas don't know what's going on until the priest shows up with a cow. Right? At this point, he goes, whoa, cut it out. We're just men. And we came to tell you to put a stop to all this nonsense. We came to proclaim the good news that in Jesus Christ, there's forgiveness of sin and eternal life. So they, they experience unbelievable acceptance. But you know what happens is in the same town, those people from Iconium follow them over to Lystra. All right, that's a good distance. In fact, uh, I've got a map here just to show you a little bit of where Paul and Barnabas are. Uh, if you look up here, you can see Lystra in Asia Minor. Here's Iconium, a little bit north of it, and there's Derby, which we'll get to. All right, they had gone through Cyprus. They had come up this region through Perga, Pisidian, Antioch, which is off the screen here. Now they've gone to Iconium and then down to Lystra. These guys from Iconium travel about 100 miles to Lystra to get Paul and Barnabas. And they stir up the crowds against them. And they force them to leave. And ultimately, they stone Paul outside the city. All right, so same mission, same day. We have the heights of praise and the depths of scorn. The gospel is received in all kinds of ways. I have found, maybe you have as well, that when I travel outside the boundaries of College Station, not everybody recognizes the utter superiority of Texas A&M, right? <laughs> we know it's true. It's a fact, right? Empirically proven. And yet, sometimes when I go outside the boundaries of this town, I find that people will argue about it and say a different school or a different team or a different whatever is better. Now, some people love A&M and they root and they cheer for it. Right? I was up in Oklahoma this past week and I overheard two of my cousins arguing about whether Johnny Football should win the Heisman or not. Right? And I, I thought, what's the argument here? <laughs> we know the truth, but it's not self-evident to all. Okay? As you walk throughout the book of Acts, you're going to see that. The gospel is true and it bears all of this fruit. And some people believe and other people reject it. Why? Well, one reason is because it requires the spirit of God for men and women to respond to the gospel. And the spirit moves in mysterious ways. You and I can't control him. This is what Jesus says in John 3 about those who are born of the spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. In other words, God moves in ways that we can't control and he speaks to people's hearts in ways that we don't know. And I can stand outside and I can see the wind blowing east and I can say to it, now blow west. Blow on that tree. That tree needs some wind. But it's not going to shift for me, is it? I can try to trace down its origin. Where did the wind start? But I'm not going to find it because I don't control it. And that's what we see going on in the book of Acts. The spirit of God will move and some will trust Christ and some will not. Why? It's a mystery of God. 
And so the gospel experiences these mixed results. Some harden their hearts, like Pharaoh hardens his in the Old Testament against God. And others believe. In the case of these early Jews who are persecuting Paul and the apostles, they felt threatened by the message of the gospel. In many cases, they felt that the message of the gospel would overturn their way of life, and in some cases, even their economy, which was so built around the sacrificial system and the temple and the law. And so they hardened their hearts. So the gospel will invite this praise and scorn. And I think the message we see here in Acts 14 is that expect when you share Jesus, when you speak of Jesus, when you reflect his character, it's going to receive mixed reactions. And if you and I base what we say, what we do, how we act around the response of other people, we will not remain faithful to the message of Jesus Christ. If our primary concern is to placate or please people. Now we love people. We care about people. We share the gospel so people can spend an eternity with Jesus Christ. But we are not ultimately accountable to the opinions of people. And so we expect when we move out onto campus, when we move out into our families, we go home for Christmas and maybe we have family members who don't know Jesus, we expect that the gospel will meet with mixed results. I've seen that in my life. There have been men and women, I can think of one guy in particular when I was just out of college that we shared the gospel and something piqued his interest. And he kept asking questions, kept asking questions and kept drawing nearer to us and to God until he believed in Jesus Christ. On the other hand, I can remember working at a print shop just after I graduated college and sharing the gospel or attempting to with one of my coworkers who before I even really could get going, shut me down. I don't want to talk about this. She barely spoke to me for weeks. What's the difference? It's a mystery of the Spirit of God. It has nothing to do with the power of my words. It has nothing to do with the skillfulness of my presentation, although we seek to be faithful. But instead, we expect God will draw some. God will not draw others. The gospel will meet with mixed results. But our task is to keep preaching the truth. How do we do that? What are the fundamental, central things that allow us, central truths and facts that allow us to keep preaching the gospel faithfully despite mixed responses? Well, we see that here in Acts 14. The gospel invites praise and scorn, but first of all, our identity remains unchanged. Our identity remains unchanged. Look again, Acts 14, verse 8. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. And we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
It would have been so easy for Paul and Barnabas to accept this praise. In fact, in Acts 12, Herod does just exactly that. Remember several weeks ago, we talked about Acts 12. Herod sits up on his throne. The people start saying, the voice of a God, not a man. And Herod goes, indeed, bring the voice of a God and not a man, right? And God strikes him dead. He's eaten by worms and he dies. I don't know if Barnabas and Paul were thinking of that at this moment. I suspect that what they're thinking of more likely is that we have been commissioned to preach the truth of the gospel. And who are we? We're just men. And they say, we're men like you. And they are rooted in this self-awareness that is neither too high nor too low. They know exactly who they are in God's economy. That's why when Paul is stoned, By that, I mean they threw stones at him and left him for dead outside the city. What does Paul do? He stands up and he walks back into Derby and then into Lystra and then into Iconium. And he keeps preaching the gospel because he knows who he is. He is a man who has been commissioned to a task. No matter who you are, Your identity in Jesus Christ does not change no matter what the world calls you, right? And this is what I love about Paul's self-awareness. In in 1 Timothy, Paul can call himself the chief among sinners, the foremost among sinners, recognizing that he is a sinner unworthy of the grace of God. And yet also we see in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we see him proclaiming all of the visions and revelations and the mission he's been given to say, I have been placed in this place at this time to preach the gospel. And so Paul has this self-awareness of, I am neither a God nor am I a worm. I'm a human being made in God's image, tasked to proclaim. That doesn't change whether the crowds are calling me a God, whether they're throwing rocks at me. This past week, my oldest daughter, for fun, decided that she was just going to give everybody in the family new names. And so for whatever reason, my name was Bleh. Now, I asked her, I said, I I misheard her at first. I said, Glenn, which is my dad's name. She goes, no, Bleh. I said, Blip? No, Bleh. B-L-I-H, Bleh, right? And uh, my wife's name was Blue for some reason. Right? And she renamed her brother and sister and herself. Now, in that moment, I could have said, I thought I was Matt. Right? But I am bleh. Right? It doesn't sound very important. It sounds small. And I could have reshaped my very understanding of myself based upon the name she gave me. But that would be ridiculous. Right? The foundational truth of who I am and my actual name doesn't shift. It's interesting in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, we see a very interesting illustration of this. Remember Daniel and his friends, whom we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are deported to Babylon from their home country as young men. And they are renamed. Interestingly, you may not know this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not their original names. Right? Daniel is his Jewish name. Daniel means my judge is God. He's renamed when he gets into Babylon. He's renamed Belteshazzar, which means Nebo protect his life. Nebo was one of the gods of the Babylonians. The chief official of Nebuchadnezzar says, you're no longer Daniel. Your judge is not God. You are now a servant of Nebo. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Hananiah means Yahweh has shown grace. 
He's renamed Shadrach, the command of Aku. Aku was the moon god. Mishael, who is what God is. He's renamed Meshach, who is what Aku is. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. He's renamed Abednego, servant of Nebo. Even the name Nebuchadnezzar means Nebo protect my boundary. They renamed these guys, right? And the implication is because you have a new name, you have a new master. You belong to our gods. You belong to our nation. And yet, as you move through the book of Daniel, like through the book of Acts, what do you see? These guys don't deviate from their real understanding that they serve the one true God. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they walk into the fiery furnace, unafraid, unwilling to bow down to an idol. Daniel, insistent upon praying to God alone, goes into a lion's den, willing to die. And I don't think it's because they're necessarily braver than you or I, although they might be. But I think it's primarily because they understood who they were and they really believed that God had made them. There are certain things about you that never change. You are made in the image of God, designed to represent him. You are also a human being, sinful and weak, in need of the grace of God. You've been offered eternal life because of the death and resurrection of Jesus who died in your place. If you don't sit here this morning secure in the fact that you know God through Jesus Christ, the message for you is you can, and you can have eternal life because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, rose again, so you can have eternal life and know him if you believe in him. Certain things about you don't change. If you know Jesus, you're commissioned to his task, to share the gospel around the world. That's why Paul can say, Romans chapter 12, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, don't think, I'm so awesome that I am above the mission of God. On the other hand, 1 Peter, which some of y'all have been studying in our Bible study this semester, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, you belong to God and you have been commissioned to be his representatives. You are a set apart and holy people. And yes, you are a human being sinful in need of grace, but you're set apart for God's purposes. And I think in that moment when you are tempted simply to say what people want to hear, to be a chameleon, to blend in, not to preach the gospel when it's going to cost you, I think this understanding of who you are, just like it did for Paul and Barnabas, will give you courage. No matter what they say, no matter what they do, my name has been given to me by God. They cannot rename me because he has named me. Do you doubt your worth? Do you doubt your mission when those around you seem hostile to the gospel? On the other hand, if you receive praise, do you begin to become inflated, accepting that praise for yourself instead of saying, my mission is to proclaim God's glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what I mean when I say, It's tempting for me to want to say things simply because you want to hear them. Because like anybody, I like people telling me 
that I'm cool, that I did things well. And so if somebody comes up and says, man, that dog story you told four weeks ago was the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life. My temptation is we're going to preach about dogs next week. (laughs) On the other hand, somebody comes in and says, what you said made me angry because it hit really close to home. And I don't think I have a problem. But your Bible's telling me I do. Next time I'm tempted to skip that little passage. And my guess is that you and I are similar. And I think what will help us is to understand that our name is given to us by God. Who we are does not change. Because he has created us. He has tasked us. And he empowers us for the task. So Paul knows his identity is unchanged. So does Barnabas. And they also recognize that their mission continues uninterrupted. I've mentioned this a couple of times, but to me, this is the most amazing part of this whole passage. Verse 19, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. All right, so uh, they stood around and they threw big rocks at Paul's body and head until he fell down. He was bleeding. He was beaten. They thought he was dead. They grab him and they drag him out and they dump him outside the city and they leave him there. Now, he must have been pretty beat up for them to believe that he's dead. But as soon as they go away, Paul gets up. Now, it seems like this is miraculous, but Paul gets up, brushes himself off, and goes, all right, we're going back in. Okay? And he goes to Derby, And then he goes back to Lystra and back to Iconium and back to Pisidian Antioch and shares the same message again and strengthens the disciples Further, he goes back into those places because he is convinced that his mission there is not done, regardless of the fact that there are people who want to kill him. And the only way he can do that is because he has a rock-solid assurance that God has called him to preach the gospel. And he's empowered by the Spirit of God to do it. I love verse 2 of chapter 14. It says, the Jews disbelieved, stirred up the minds of the Gentiles, and bittered them against the brethren. Then verse 3, look at this. Therefore, they spent a long time there, speaking boldly. Did you catch that? There's all this opposition, all this hostility, and it says, so, Paul decided to stay a while. Okay, that's not what I would expect. What you would expect is there's all this opposition, all this hostility. Paul says, I'm going to go buy a good sofa and a flat screen. I'm headed home. No, he says... The mission isn't done until these men and women hear Jesus Christ and the disciples are strengthened. We are accustomed in our culture to stories of perseverance, aren't we? We see them on TV and on the movies all the time. One of the classic stories of perseverance in the 20th century is the Rocky story. All right, some of you are familiar with it. Some of you have not seen them. I've seen all six of them. That in and of itself is a story of perseverance, especially number five. But the original movie, it's this great story. This guy is basically a bum. He boxes when he can, but he is also a collector for kind of a two-bit criminal mob guy. And he gets a shot at the title to fight Apollo Creed, the heavyweight champion. And so he trains and he trains and he trains and he trains. And what I love is the scene right before he's going to go fight Apollo Creed. And he's talking to his girlfriend, Adrian, right? And he says... Hey, I can't beat him. Uh, Who am I kidding? I can't beat him. 
says, all I want to do, I just want to go the distance. And then everybody will know I'm not some bum from the street. And he stands up there and he takes a 15 round beating. And he's still standing. Now, why does he do it? It's hard to say, right? In his heart, it's because I believe I'm somebody. I believe I'm special. I believe I deserve this shot. And we see that kind of theme all the time in our movies. And it's tempting to look at a guy like Paul and go, man, Paul is just, he's a Rocky of the first century. He's that strong. He's that tough. He's a man's man. They throw a bunch of stones at him and he gets up and goes, bring it on. But the reality is that Paul is a man who is dependent on the spirit of God. And what gets him up isn't a sense of personal awesomeness. It's a conviction that God has called him to the mission, even if it costs him his life. That God has called him to share Jesus Christ all around the world, as far as he can, even if it costs him his life. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus had commissioned his disciples to go into all the world, preach the gospel to all the nations. He'd promised to be with them. They took that commission and they laid down their lives for it, believing that if Jesus died for them and rose again so they could have life, it was their task to represent him to the furthest ends of the earth. And so they remained faithful amidst praise, amidst persecution. So as we look at Acts 14, then how do you and I stay consistent? What I really want is to have consistency of character. That I'm the same person when I'm standing in church, as I am at the grocery store, as I am when I'm with unbelieving family, as I am in class maybe with unbelievers, or at a workplace where people don't know Jesus. I want to be the same. Gracious and yet bold as I present the gospel. How do I do that? Remember who you are, first of all. Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. The opinions of others do not fundamentally alter who God has made you to be and what he's called you to do. And then remember your mission. If you know Jesus Christ, you're called to represent him. You're called to preach the gospel. You're called to help others know him. And as we begin to ground ourselves in these basic fundamentals, as we begin to rely upon the Spirit, he gives us courage. He gives us power. He gives us strength to do his will. That's what we see in the life of Paul and Barnabas. Men who are moved by the Spirit of God as he directs them. And they unwaveringly look at Jesus Christ and say, God, make me effective as I share the gospel. And make me consistent. The type of men, the type of women who persevere, whether things are going well or whether things are going poorly. Remember who you are. Remember your mission. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you so much that you've given us an opportunity to study your word. Thank you so much that you have provided through Jesus Christ all that we need for life and for godliness. Father, we pray that we would not be deterred from our mission by the opinions of others, that we would not be chameleons who simply seek to blend in, who simply seek to keep all conflict 
at a minimum, but instead we would graciously and lovingly but boldly proclaim your message. Father, as we sing now, I pray you would turn our hearts toward you. I pray we would praise you for all that you have given us in Jesus Christ and that you would empower us through your spirit to go out and have an impact on this campus that reaches beyond anything we can dream or imagine as we sit here this morning. That we would see people all around this campus, all around this world, know Jesus because of how you're moving in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.